This is The Ethicist, a podcast from The New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce my co-hosts. Anthony Appiah teaches philosophy at New York University. Hello, Anthony. Hi, Amy. And Kenji Yoshino teaches law also at New York University. And Kenji, I have so enjoyed reading your new book, Speak Now, Marriage Equality on Trial. Thanks so much, Amy. That's a kind thing to say. Coming up, we'll tackle reader questions about how and what to say about public health concerns in public places, prayers for the dead and attitudes of the living, and if men are beasts, what does that make women? Okay, so here is our first question. Dear ethicists, I'm an ancillary healthcare professional, but my question derives from a recent grocery shopping experience. I was in a neighborhood supermarket and noticed that one of my fellow shoppers, who was dressed quite nicely and casually, had hanging around her neck a mask as used in hospitals but normally worn over one's mouth. She also had a very large bandage on her upper chest, visible because of a v-neck. On one arm, she sported two large bandages on sites where one might have had blood work done. As we were both in the vegetable section of the market, she took grapes out of one bag and put them in another to make her bag smaller, which I have seen done, but my instinct was to think of transmission of some infection. As I progressed through the market, I encountered the woman leisurely shopping and coughing without covering her mouth. Given that I only knew what I saw and developed my own theory that this was a shopper with some disease process, which prompted someone to tell her to wear a mask and that she was a public health hazard, the experience left me with an uneasy feeling that I should have done something, spoken to the manager, spoken to the shopper. Did I have an obligation to intervene? It was possible to avoid direct contact with this person, which is what I did, and I did not linger in the market. I can't remember any similar experience. I wonder what people do in such situations. Signed, ABE, Georgetown, South Carolina. Well, I think the first point that I'd like to make here is that, uh, and it's a general point about ethical situations, which is that what the right thing to do is depends upon what the facts are. And generally speaking, uh, the first thing to do is to make sure you've got the facts right. And it seems to me that there's no very good reason to think that on the basis of what you've told us that your theory uh, about what was going on is any better than a dozen other possible accounts of why this person uh, had these uh, various signs of medical interventions. I mean, the the thing on the top of the chest is, well, that might suggest a central line, and then that would be someone who might be having chemo or kidney dialysis, and that person would be, uh, everybody else would be more of a danger to her uh, than she would be to anybody else. So I think if you did feel that there was a serious possibility that a person in these circumstances posed a threat to other people, the first thing would be to find out whether that was true. And the only way to do that in these circumstances would be to have a polite conversation with the person in question. Right. And do you need any help? Yes. You know, I, I'm, I'm an ancillary healthcare <laughs> professional, and I couldn't help but notice. You know, do you, need, do you need any help? I think if the answer is no... It seems to me that even if the letter writer continued to have that concern, she would have to back off. That even if you have concerns about your community, which I think it's, it's good that people have concerns about their community, it doesn't seem to me that there's more to be done and it doesn't seem to me that it'd be appropriate to go to the grocery store manager and point the shopper out. I think yeah. if she asks for any help or shares health information that would prompt further action, that's one thing, but if she doesn't, I 
think that the letter writer has to stop there and make sure that when she gets home, she washes all of her produce. And look, I mean, that piece of advice from Amy seems to be the right thing for us to point out to all of our listeners, which is that uh, uh, to the extent that there are health risks associated with buying uh, food that's not uh, in closed packaging, that you should, of course, uh, wash off uh, fruit and vegetables that you buy that's uh, unsealed and so on. Uh, And um, on the other hand, I think it's also a good piece of advice to the world in general that you shouldn't expose other people to unnecessary risks. So if you do have, if you are fluey, for example, it's probably not a good idea to feel all the loaves in the bread store and, uh, and so on. Uh, <laughs> That's such a horrible image. <laughs> but, you know, you seem somebody be... like coughing and squeezing. <laughs> but, you know, I think, uh, I mean, I to begin with, I thought, well, you could go to the store, but then I don't know what the store is supposed to do. They can't exactly wander around disinfecting everything. No. Um, I don't think this is up to the grocery store manager at all. What about option number three? I mean, it seems like the options that we've discussed are talk to the woman and who's wandering around with a bandage, which seems a little bit to me like piling on. I mean, this is a woman who already seems to be suffering. So to impose uninformed grief on them <laughs> seems to be... Um, well, you could ask her. Right. That was my only thought. You could right. ask her if, there was, if she needed any help. But if that's option number one and there's option number two, which is go talk to the manager. I know I'm a big advocate of like have the conversation on the show, but you know, option number three mm. seemed to be completely uh, <laughs> plausible, if not uh, uh, desirable, which is uh, what the letter writer actually did, which is to leave the store. You know, mm-hmm. it, it just seems to me like this is not, there's not enough to, uh, to go on here. You know, I spent a good chunk of my life in, in Japan and, you know, one of the things I love about Japan is that you go on the subway and everyone who has a respiratory ailment is wearing a mask. You know, so that's just the norm. Uh, but you know, if you see people with masks half off, that means that they have made their own judgment that they're feeling okay and they they right. don't feel like they're a threat to other people. So maybe I'm projecting too much into the situation, but. I kind of no, feel like th- butting out is fine. Look, I think that, I mean, there is, there's, there's sort of two possible responses here. Right? One is to say, uh, look, this is none of my business. And the other is to feel as this person obviously did. Well, it's a little bit my business. I mean, I, I, I do think that I'm, I may be seeing someone put other people unnecessarily at risk. And I think that's a, I mean, that's a perfectly respectable thought. I think it's, I think it's an honourable thought. But in these circumstances, in our society, I'm not sure that there's any courteous way, uh, and therefore effective way, because a discourteous way isn't going to have any good effect, uh, of doing anything about it. And as I say, I think we should all remember that the the way in which uh, this the food is sold in these places means that we should all take care and the the distribution of responsibility for caring about these things is that each of us is supposed to look after uh wash our own fruit as it were uh and that (laughs) that way we needn't feel too bad if we pick up a piece of fruit and put it back down because we don't want it and today amy do you shush people in the quiet car in amtrak or say at the opera or a musical performance of some kind it depends i i that's um, a much more direct interruption right of and yeah, I just rage car. internally. <laughs> yeah, I do. My Sometimes blood pressure I rises. Yes, right. I blink intensely. <laughs> you know, I I try to hold their gaze, um, but yeah, no, it's a problem. And ever since that that you know, there's been a rise in America in people shooting people for playing music too loudly, or probably conversely for shushing them. 
um, it's made me a little a little more hesitant. I don't think the lady in question here would have been armed necessarily, <laughs> um, and but I do think that you certainly ran the risk of of piling on, as Kenji said. I have a feeling we should wrap this one up and dive into the next letter. Dear ethicists, a friend of mine's family member died. The friend is an atheist, and the family was very non-religious. A close friend of the deceased is an Orthodox Jew and feels very strongly that she wants to pay out of her own pocket for Kaddish to be said at the Western Wall in the deceased's memory. Kaddish is a Jewish prayer for the dead. My friend, while not wishing to offend anyone, finds this offensive as he does not believe in God and, even more importantly, is of the view that if there were a God, it would be morally illegitimate to curry or receive any advantage from him by means of supplication. What is the right thing for the parties to do? Signed, A.W., Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So I think if we think of prayer as a form of wishing someone well and the language and belief system that's at their disposal, it's really hard for me to see how the Jewish friend is engaged in any kind of unethical behavior. And I don't think it would be ethical to stop the Jewish friend from doing what he or she proposes to do. So uh, I suspect that the problem might be with the Kaddish itself, which in my understanding underscores that the mourner still praises God despite the loss. Uh, so that there's a level of um, reaffirming belief that the deceased might not have. But unless you're totally confident that the deceased would not want that, I don't see that the friend of the deceased has any standing with regard to how the deceased should be mourned. So that's one point. And the second point is that this is really a private event, so that it's not as if the Jewish friend wants to stand up during the memorial service of the deceased and say a prayer but rather is going off and doing their own thing. So uh, I really don't see uh, a conflict uh, between these two friends of the deceased. It seems like each should be left to mourn in his or her own way. Oh, I agree. Yeah. I was a bit puzzled by the idea. I, I tried to make sense of the idea that you might think it was offensive, but it's, it's sort of well-intentioned. And so even if there is some kind of failure of respect, if it's really true that the person would have banged the table and said, no Kaddish for me, I still think that um, it's not really a very, it's, it's, I can't really feel that the person's doing something terribly wrong. And I, as you say, it would be, I think, outrageous for some other party to intervene uh, um, on, the ba- uh, on the basis of, of your standing as a friend of a member of the family of the deceased. I think that would be wrong. And, and the member of the family too, it strikes me. Uh, doesn't have any uh, who doesn't have any particular standing, and these people are atheists and non-religious, and so it seems to me, even if you believed that the deceased would want to rise up and pound his or her <laughs> fist and say no Kaddish for me, if you're an atheist, you're pretty sure that person is dead and doesn't know, and so I don't. It seems to me that the friend actually as people do, you know, it's a death and everybody's upset, finds this offensive because there's a wish to sort of claim greater closeness to the friend, um, you know, to the family member who died and say, listen, I know how our family member would have wanted Mm -hmm. to do things. And that person would not have liked this. But my feeling, and I, in fact, come from that kind of family, but this is private mourning. No one is insisting on, you know, rending their garments and doing the Kaddish, you know, every day for seven days in the middle of the family's living room. 
This is something they wanted they want done at the Western Wall, probably kind of far away from the living room. <laughs> yes. And it seems to me that with private mourning, as with private expressions of love, it is difficult and often pointless and often cruel to try to control the form that that private activity will take. And I think one of the ways of getting some kind of purchase into what's going on here is to think about a flip scenario, which I recently heard about, which I thought was both beautiful and elegant and ethical, where an uh, unaffiliated friend of mine who was a lawyer uh, had a serious medical episode and a federal judge who's deeply religious wrote to him, him a letter and said, you know, you may take this the wrong way, but I'm praying for your recovery. And my friend wrote back, um, I concur in the judgment, right? <laughs> which I think is such a beautiful thing, which is, you know, you understand, you take the prayer and no, no pun intended, the spirit in which it was intended, you know. And, Absolutely. And you take the intent for the deed. I, I, would, I would say leave well alone myself. Right. And, and also I, my sympathy to the friend whose family member died because I assume that, that part of what is fueling all this self-righteous um, sense of offense is loss and grief. Yes. All right. On to our last question. Dear ethicists, I'm a single woman. Many of my friends are men. I moved to a new town and became friendly with a married man, who then told me that he was romantically interested in me. He explained that he wasn't in a traditional marriage and that, while it wasn't open, his wife knew how he felt and that they were negotiating some arrangement that might allow him to pursue his feelings if they were shared. I admitted that I was attracted to him, but made it clear that I wouldn't have an affair with him in secret and that I had no desire to cause a rift between him and his wife, who I didn't know as well, but liked. I then continued to behave as if we were friends, as we'd been before. At one point, we saw a movie together, and we continued talking at work. We're adjunct professors at the same university. However, it quickly became clear that his wife took a far more traditional view of their marriage. And although I thought I was being fairly responsible about the situation, I was pilloried by his wife, by her friends, and by a close friend of mine for, quote-unquote, encouraging his extramarital attraction. I was told that I had no girl code, that I was anti-feminist, and that you just don't do that to another woman. Here's the question. Was I naive and perhaps lacking in empathy, or was it my ethical responsibility, as was clearly implied, to remind him forcibly of his marriage vows? More generally, is a woman who has chosen not to marry responsible for acting as a custodian to another woman's marriage? Must a woman police her behavior so as not to incite a man to infidelity? Can a man be incited to infidelity? These ideas seem backwards, regressive, and have, in my mind, nothing to do with feminism. In fact, they sound a little bit like telling a rape victim that she should have known better than to go out in a provocative dress. My behavior may have been self-serving, thoughtless, or any number of other things, but I don't believe that it was ethically objectionable, at least not on the grounds that were presented, which seem based on the idea that men can't be expected to control themselves and that we must protect other women by refusing to participate in their destructive extramarital relationships. 
I'm now calling this the Jolene fallacy. Signed, name withheld. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's it's a great um, presentation of the issue. It makes you think, oh, do we want Edith Wharton or do we want Lena Dunham (laughs) to answer this question? Um, It seems to me that self-serving, also, by the way, self-deceiving, and thoughtless, as the letter writer acknowledges herself to have been, will head her towards an ethical problem pretty quickly. I don't think the issue is that this is anti-feminist behavior. I think the issue is that it is self-serving, self-deceiving, and thoughtless behavior. And, I mean, there, there are lots of interesting questions here. I would love to know how she found out quickly that his wife took a far more traditional view of their marriage and what she means by being fairly responsible. And I'm also pretty interested in the idea of behaving as if we were friends, Um, all of which seem to me to point to the ethical problems here. Um, It's not that it's so, you know, that it's a narrow narrow definition of an anti-feminist behavior. As soon as she found out that this was not an open marriage, Um, should have removed herself from the situation, which means you don't go to the movies and you don't have little private conversations. And in general, I think the policy is something like, if you wouldn't act this way towards the object of your um, affection or attraction in front of their spouse, you shouldn't act that way at all. And that once she knew it wasn't an open marriage... I think one can agree that often men announce that they are in open marriages in ways, in, and that would be news to their wives or their husbands. But they should have stopped. She should have stopped the movie dates. There was a mutual attraction, and um, and she knew that she was, you know, sort of playing around the edges, and it was gratifying and exciting. And um, it seems to me that the open marriage ploy strikes me very much the way I am struck when I get an email that says, Amy, I'm stuck in Manila. Why are $3,000 right away? It's not credible. Did you get that $3,000 I, I wired you, Amy? <laughs> I, I, for me, the key sentence here was, I don't believe that it was in the letter writer's defense. Uh, so you say, I don't believe that it was ethically objectionable, at least not on the grounds that were presented. So I think that you're hitting the nail on the head there, because the objections that have been raised are feminist objections. And for me, feminism has nothing to do with this. It has everything to do with, you know, there is a marriage, and regardless of the gender of the parties, uh, if it were a woman who were married and a single man who she was consorting with, uh, the man wouldn't be breaking a girl code, uh, but he would be... (laughs) you know, enabling uh, the breaking of the marriage vow and hurting another person of whatever gender. So the wrong grounds have been presented to you, but you're intuiting that there might be an ethical problem other than the grounds that have been presented to you, which are feminist grounds. And I think you're absolutely right about that. This is unethical, but not because it's anti-feminist. Right. I do think that it's important to stress that marriage is a social institution that uh, when the people in the conventional uh, Christian wedding service are uh, invited to witness it. They're invited to witness it because they represent the communities standing there to say, we're going to help you do this difficult thing, which is sustaining 
a loving, lifelong relationship. It's not, my own view is that marriage is absolutely not something you can do on your own. You need, <laughs> you need friends and, and, and community to support you. And, and that's, that's why I think um, gay marriage is, is, is an important uh, institution as well as straight marriage. But and if, that's why I wired you the $3,000. Because <laughs> <laughs> you so, do need friends. So, yes. So I think that um, what's being betrayed here is not women. It's, it's a very, very central and important social institution. Of course, there are there are people who who within the framework of of marriage have all kinds of arrangements with one another, and that's I'm, I'm not going to say that that can't be okay. But this wasn't one of those cases. This is one of the cases where the job of the community, it seems to me, the job of people around, is to help them do the thing. And the thing about sexual temptation is the best way not to succumb to sexual temptation is to avoid the temptation. Um, going out on dates with people and promising yourself you won't sleep with them is not an efficient way of avoiding sleeping with people. If you don't want to sleep with people, don't go out on dates. And if she didn't want to damage this marriage, which she says she didn't, then I think it was just a mistake to put herself in circumstances where both of them were subject to temptation. And I would like to make one point, which is that I think that the, 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 the friends here do miss one important thing, which is that the, the major object of criticism here should be the guy. Yes, This is the guy absolutely. who's lying, deceiving his wife, deceiving his potential uh, paramour and so on, and um, or attempting to. And um, I, would, uh, I would say that it's very odd to focus on her wrongs uh, when at the center of the story is a guy who's doing something seriously wrong in breaching a commitment, lying, and so on. I wish it were odd. I think it's very common. I mean, I think it's utterly misguided, you know, to blame the woman rather than the man who was making these elaborate arrangements right. to, um, to, to, to be unfaithful to his wife. But I think that this happens all the time, that yeah. the view, you know, it's, it's as if everybody is still in junior high. You know, you blame the girl who wore the sexy yellow shirt and not the person who's been, you know, your boyfriend for six months who suddenly dumps you during lunch hour. And somehow it is the fault of the girl and the yellow shirt. And I think that's utterly misguided and usually speaks to the fact that women feel that there is um, a message that they can send to women which will be received in a way that they cannot send the message to the man. Yes, right, right. I mean, I think... She's right that the, the, the grounds of objection that all these other people are making seem off base. That they seem to miss the central point. On the other hand, she doesn't seem quite, as Amy said earlier, to, to be fully uh, self-aware about what she herself is doing. She seems... Uh, she doesn't describe going out to the movie with a guy who's declared his sexual attraction to you as going on a date, but that's... That's what it is if you go out on, uh, with a, to a movie with a man who said he's attracted to you and you're attracted to him. And, and if she described it to herself in that way, I think she would already have seen that is what she shouldn't have been doing it. And in fact, I think she did see it. Um, I mean, she says self-serving and thoughtless. And it seems to me that self-serving and thoughtless is well on her way yes. to having an ethical problem. And she's taken a lot of comfort I think in her correct assessment that the objections are misguided, but that, as Kenji said at the beginning, that doesn't make her behavior any more ethical. But I think it's pretty clear once you look into it that the thing that she wants us to say is is not what you know. We're not. It's not what we we could say. Yeah, we can't really give her a blessing here. We can't. We can't. Yeah, exactly. 
Yes, we will not be wiring $3,000. (laughs) And that's it for The Ethicist. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicists at nytimes.com. If you'd like to leave a voicemail question for us to answer on the show, the number is 212-556-7070. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes. Our producer is Kerry Hillman, and the music is by the band Broke for Free. For Anthony Appiah and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom. We'll talk to you next week on The Ethicist.